Katrina von Boro was born on January 29th, 1499, about 15 years after Martin Luther. We know her probable birth date only because one of her earliest biographers saw a commemorative medal that she had worn around her neck, and that medal included her birthday. It was a gift from Luther. The medal has since disappeared, but it included a portrait of Moses lifting up the serpent on one side and the words, Christ died for our sins on the other. Beyond our mostly being certain about her birth date, and by the way, there's still arguments about whether we really do or not, um, we know little about the details of Katrina's early life. After all, we're talking about 500 years ago. Katerina was of noble birth. The, the fun in fun bora indicates nobility. But her father was only a small landowner, and the returns on his land didn't bring in enough money to pay the bills. When Katerina's mother died a few years after her birth, her father quickly married again and to a widow with several children of her own, so there was no way he could support this expanded family, and so he packed up his six-year-old daughter, Katerina, and sent her off to a Benedictine con convent. It's, it's tempting to call Hans von Bora heartless, but this sort of conduct was typical among the uh, nobility of the time and place, and at least Katerina was given the opportunity for a better education with the Benedictines than she probably could have gotten anywhere else. Anyway, for Hans, it was one less mouth to feed. And at this point, he hadn't necessarily condemned Katie to be a nun for the rest of her life, though it's quite possible that when Hans dropped her off, it was the last time they, they ever saw each other. Four years later, in 1509, Hans sent an emissary to remove his now 10-year-old daughter from the Benedictines and take her to a Cistercian convent 42 miles away. Hans had now decided that Katerina would be a lifelong nun, and he contributed a small amount to support his daughter's enclosure in the Cistercian convent for life. Again, Hans probably made this decision for financial reasons. It was cheaper to pay for his daughter to become a nun than it was to provide the dowry for her to marry a nobleman. And the entrance fee for the Cistercian convent was less than the entrance fee for the Benedictine convent. The Cistercian convent was a bare bones affair, so um, Katie took another step downwards in terms of comfort and prestige. Cistercian convents were usually uh, built in out-of-the-way places with an eye towards seclusion and the ability to strictly enclose the inhabitants. There were about 35 to 40 nuns in the convent, about average for the era, so there should have been some camaraderie there, but the nuns weren't supposed to talk to one another, um, even at meals. Um, I suppose they had to interact while they were doing their jobs around the convent. Perhaps they also relied on some kind of sign language. Anyway, the Cistercians, um, this, is, this is the, um, the ruins, the well-preserved ru ruins in, uh, in Nimchen, which is about, as I said, about 60 miles south of Wittenberg, where Luther was. Um, in 1515, when she was 16, Katerina took vows of obedience, chastity, and poverty donned a floor-length white habit and was officially consecrated as a Cistercian nun. Um, this is a modern Cistercian nun, but the, 
the garb hasn't changed. So she's wearing what, what Katerina would have, would have worn. Um, apparently, she, Katerina made no waves in the convent. At least there's no record of complaints about her in the cloister record. No one knows how Katerina and her fellow, fellow nuns learned about Martin Luther and the doctrines of grace. Few people were allowed to enter the convent. Even those who did enter the convent had to speak with nuns through a finely meshed grate through which it would have been difficult to pass a book or even a pamphlet. But clearly Luther's writings, and especially those attacking monastic vows, did make it into the convent somehow. In 1522, Luther wrote the following about monasteries in his typical take no prisoner style. They teach that this kind of life and all that goes to make it up is the good life, and that by practicing it, men become good and are saved. This is sacrilege, godlessness, blasphemy. It is lies they have trumped up. It is delusion, hypocrisy, and satanic invention. Wouldn't you like to know his real feelings about it? <laughs> the vow of chastity especially irritated him. He said that only one person in a thousand could truly and joyfully live a celibate life without impure thoughts. As Luther's writings against monasticism spread throughout Germany, convents and monasteries began to close. Part of the daily responsibilities of monks and nuns had been praying for souls of the departed, and the fees paid by laymen to have the souls prayed for were often a significant part of the monastery income. Once Luther's teaching on salvation by grace alone spread through the country, money to pray for the dead stopped coming in. That doesn't mean that all or even most nuns were ready to abandon the cloisters. Former monks could become Protestant clergymen, but what were former nuns going to do? In convents, women were relatively independent of men, and abbesses often controlled vast amounts of property and were politically important people connected to the local nobility. It's true enough that if younger nuns, if younger nuns left the convent, they might get married, but, but how about nuns who were past childbearing age? What would happen to them? Who would marry them? What would they do? So nuns in convents became some of the most vocal and resolute opponents of the Protestant Reformation. When local rulers ordered monks to close the monasteries, most of them did so without protest. When local rulers ordered nuns to close the convents, most of them resisted. Women were definitely second-class citizens in Reformation Germany. Often towns, German towns wouldn't grant citizenship to women. Citizenship was a right that was based on one's ability to work, to own property, and support the military. Laws often forbade unmarried women to move into cities, required widows to reside with one of their male children, and required unmarried women to have guardians to manage their financial and legal affairs. Even if a nun left the convent with some money, that money was likely going to be turned over to her new husband, her family, or her guardian. Of course, Katerina had been effectively abandoned by her father years before. She had no money. She had no male relative to turn to for support. She also would have a hard time marrying because she had no money for a dowry. Worse, while allowances were made by some towns for women to work for wages in certain occupations, as say tailors or shopkeepers and innkeepers, Katie was a noble woman and she wouldn't have been allowed to work for wages no matter how poor she was. This is, this is a catch-22, you know. You have no money, but you're no, a noble woman, so therefore you can't work. Furthermore, during this period, single women were treated with extra suspicion. 
the Reformation era was also the era of European witch hunts. Um, exactly why that is has been debated by scholars for, for many times. I, I graded AP European history one year, and the question was about witchcraft hunts in Europe during the Reformation. And the answer was you could argue either that it was caused by the Reformation or it was caused by the Counter-Reformation, and it didn't make any sense to me. And I, I said, before you ask a question like this for high school students, you've got to figure out what the answer is yourself, you know. <laughs> Luther's own mother, mother believed that one of his brothers had been murdered by a neighbor who she thought was a witch and who had cursed him. Despite all the um, difficulties for nuns who wanted to leave the convent, um, in 1523, Katrina von Bora and 11 other nuns in the Cistercian convent in Nimshin decided to escape. How this was arranged is lost to us. Abducting nuns or helping them escape was serious business, technically a capital offense, and the local ruler, Duke George, would have at least exacted stiff fines on anyone caught in the act of doing so. Somehow the nuns got word to Luther, 60 miles away, that they wanted out, and Luther, being the two-fisted guy that he was, said, I'll help you. So Luther enlisted the aid of one Leonard Kopf, who was a respected burgher of Torgau, a town about halfway between Wittenberg and Nimschen. Kopf was a merchant who from time to time delivered barrels of herring to the convent. On Easter evening, when the convent routine was modified by the holiday, the 12 fled, bundled into cops covered wagon as if they were empty barrels. Um, there's a st the story is, the story got passed down that he actually took the nuns out in barrels. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that's what really happened. I just can't imagine these ladies crawling into a barrel and having them roll them out. I think, this, I think what he did was he you know, he brought the barrels in and then he sort of bundled them out as if they were barrels and put a cover over them and drive, drove away. I, 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 the story about them being in the barrel is, seems pretty far-fetched to me. Anyway, they were dropped, the, uh, three of the nuns were dropped off at their homes because they lived halfway between, they, they lived between Nimshin and, and, and Torgau. So they, the nine made it to Torgau and the next day they got to Wittenberg and, you know, we always like anniversaries for uh, Reformation Week, and this is the 500th anniversary of Katrina and the nuns escaping from the nunnery, from the convent. When they got to Wittenberg, Luther came out to meet them from the formidable stone building that had been the Augustan monasteries. Oh, this is, this is Wittenberg. This is what they would have seen about that time. Um, and this is the Augustinian monastery called the the Black Cloister. Um, today it's a Luther Museum. The monks who had once lived there had now all moved on except for Luther and one elderly monk who didn't have anywhere else to go. Luther felt responsible to find all the former nuns, homes, husbands, or positions of some sort. An obvious solution was that he should dispose of one case by marrying himself. Someone suggested it. Luther dismissed the notion, not because he opposed marriage, but because he expected to soon die as a martyr. Most of the escaped nuns were rejected by their families. The families had paid a fee to get rid of them years before, and there was no financial incentive now to taking them back. 
The best solution for the former nuns was to find suitable husbands. Luther became a matchmaker, writing letters to potential suitors and their families. Katie was 24, and even in those days of early marriages among the nobility, she remained of prime marriageable age. She soon had a suitor, one Ironimus Baumgartner of Nuremberg, an alumnus of the University of Wittenberg, a friend of Luther's. Baumgartner visited Wittenberg on several occasions, and he and Katie seemed to like, have liked each other. Maybe even love isn't too strong a word to describe what they were involved in here. Um, they thought his parents would bless the marriage, but the parents apparently didn't consider a runaway nun with no dowry a suitable match for their noble son. The upshot was that Bumgardner married somebody else. Katie was emotionally shattered. Um, worse, she was just about out of options. Two years had elapsed since she had escaped from the convent. All the rest of the nuns were now gone. She had moved in with the family of Lucas and Barbara Cranick, influential citizens of the town, and they had been exceedingly generous to her. Cranick was the court painter to Elector, to elector Frederick the Wise. Um, Frederick um, is here in this picture. The pictures of Luther that I put up on the screen and of Katie are, were both done by Cranick. He was a real, he was a first-rate artist, so she, it was wonderful that she got to stay in his house. He was, a, he was a wealthy man. He operated a pharmacy. He had a wine shop. He had a print shop. In fact, he made a great deal of money just by being Luther's publisher. But Katie, no matter how much they were nice to her, couldn't stay with them forever. Luther then made another selection for Katie and chose the wonderfully named Caspar Glotz, a doctor of theology, an intelligent, resourceful, and single man. Katie would have nothing to do with him. She had heard that he was stubborn, argumentative, and miserly. He was also old. Later, Klotz had to be replaced as a clergyman because he got into so many arguments with his parishioners, so she was probably wise in what she decided to do. So Katie would not accept Glotz on any terms, but her position was delicate. She knew well that the affair of the escaped nuns had been a pain to Luther, doubly so because her case had been the most protracted. She asked a friend of Luther, Nicholas von Amsdorf, to please tell Luther that she couldn't abide Glotz, but she wasn't unreasonable. She would take Amsdorf or Luther. For, 16th, for a 16th century woman to suggest something like this must have taken an enormous courage and self-assurance. As I said earlier, Luther wasn't uh, opposed to clerical marriage, at least in theory. Um, he knew the Bible well. Marriage was divinely ordained, a gift from God to be honored and esteemed. But that didn't mean he wanted to take the plunge himself. In a letter of 1524, he wrote to a friend, I have no intention of marrying, not that I am insensible to the emotions of the flesh, being neither wood nor stone, but because I daily expect to die a heretic's death. He reasoned that any woman who married him would soon be a widow. Furthermore, Luther was infuriated when he heard that Katerina wouldn't accept Glotz. He complained she was too picky, that she was proud, she was an aristocrat. Who does she think she is? Luther's friend Amsdorf took her side. What are you trying to do to force the good Kate to marry that old cheapskate? He said. 
When Luther went home to visit his parents, he recounted Katie's proposal to them, perhaps as an entertaining story, maybe as even a, maybe as even a joke. But his father took the proposal seriously and encouraged Luther to marry. Hans Luther, uh, Luther's father, had never been happy with Luther's decision to become a monk. Now Luther could make amends if he could give his dad some grandkids. Yes, Luther might still be martyred, but if he married Katie, he could provide her, her some status while also giving a testimony to his faith. And the status that he would give Katie is, sounds better in German than it does in English because she would not just be Mrs. Luther, she would be Mrs. Dr. Luther for the rest of her life. Luther also began to think his religious reforms would take hold faster if the upper clergy, like the archbishops, who were important political figures, would get married. And Luther was willing to serve as an example to them. This marriage was no love match. Luther admitted that he was neither physically nor romantically attracted to Katerina. He summed up his decision to marry with three reasons. One, to please his father. Two, despite the pope and the devil. And three, to seal his witness before martyrdom. Really romantic, right? He told Amstorf, God has willed it and brought about this step. Later, he admitted that he had initially had his eye on another one of the escaped nuns who he thought was less proud and arrogant than Katie and who, with his muscular personality, he probably would have crushed as flat as a paper cup if he had married her. While Luther dallied about whether he ought to marry this woman, she married a pharmacist before he could make up his mind. Typical of Luther, once he had decided to marry Katie, he made wedding plans immediately. On June 13, 1525, Luther and Katie were married in a modest ceremony with just five guests and the bride and groom standing outside Luther's home, the Black Cloister. Two weeks later, there was a public ceremony. The main event, that was, that was sort of the main social part of the marriage business, around the entrance to the city church, right here, um, with crowds lining the streets. Luther's parents came to this ceremony, as did dozens of his friends and professional colleagues. Nobody came from Katerina's family. Like today, Germans of the 16th century tended to throw money at wedding ceremonies, but Luther was poor and Katie was penniless. Of course, Luther did have the advantage of being famous, so he invited lots of friends to come to the wedding, suggesting that when they came, they please bring food and drink to be served at the banquet. Local dignitaries certainly did more than their share, giving Luther sizable cash gifts. Other guests brought coins and silver cups, many of which the Luthers later sold to make ends meet. We will dis this is this is uh, inside of the uh, Luther house. So, oh, I, I guess I got to go back though. Uh, yeah, I, I, okay, I'll I'll get there. Um, We will discreetly draw the curtain on the first days of, of Luther's marriage, not because we have no information, but because we do. Apparently, Luther's bed was simply dirty straw. Later, Luther said, before I was married, the bed was not made for a whole year and became foul with sweat, but I worked so hard and was so weary, I tumbled in without noticing it. Katie cleaned the house. There were no other adjustments. I was alone and there's someone else here now. In bed, you wake up in the morning and see a couple pigtails on the pillow, which were not there before. Talk about strikes against this being a successful marriage. 
Here they were, 26-year-old former nun, a 42-year-old former monk, each of them independent, stubborn, and accustomed to living a quiet, cloistered life. Then factor in the fact that their finances were precarious, that Luther had been reluctant to marry anyone in general, and married Katerina in particular, not to mention the constant threats on Luther's life. Finally, a lot of Luther's friends gave him no support at all. They thought Luther's marriage would distract him from his mission and set back the progress of the Reformation. Worse came from the Catholics. They accused Luther of marrying for lust. They accused him of running out the other monks in his cloister so he could have the whole place to himself. Katie was called a prostitute and a dancing girl. Even Erasmus, who usually had good sense about things like this, claimed Katie had borne a child a few days after the wedding. A hundred years later, Catholic writers were still vilifying Katrina. Katie had no way to defend herself, although Luther was not a man to be trifled with when it came to, inv to invective. When a couple Catholic scholars sent Luther letters urging him to send the nun back, said, send the nun back to Christ, her bridegroom, or suffer the torments of hell, Luther wrote an anonymous satirical reply in which he implied that he had given the letters to his servants to use as toilet paper. That's, that's typical Luther. Meanwhile, Katie had to do something about her new home, the former monastery. The place was in shambles. Most of the rooms were empty, and most of the household items had disappeared or been stolen. The place was also filthy. One of the great advantages about staying with the Cranachs for two years is that she had learned some household skills. But now she was faced with a sprawling property that was literally falling down around her. Um, I have this picture. This is the inside. So, it, of course, it's a museum, and it's nicely kept, so it did, didn't look anything like this in her day. But you can see the size of it. You can get the feeling of how big it was. First off, she whitewashed the walls with lime, which lightened up the place and perhaps deterred some of the bugs and the vermin. The former flower garden was a mess of weeds. Katie replanted it in vegetables, lettuce, cabbage, peas, beans, melons, and cucumbers. She looked after an orchard beyond the village, which supplied them with apples, grapes, pears, nuts, and peaches. She also had a fish pond. She looked after the barnyard with hens, ducks, pigs, and cows, and she did the slaughtering herself. Luther named Katie the Morning Star of Wittenberg because she rose daily at 4 a.m. in order to finish her day's work by 9 p.m. In 1526, a year after she had moved into the Black Cloister, Katie had the once overrun garden flourishing. This, by the way, probably give you a better idea of what it looked like inside. Um, this is Luther. This is the room that's uh, displayed as Luther's study. Meanwhile, the cloister was filling up again. It wasn't long before the cells in the former monastery were occupied by various sorts of guests, students, professors, political refugees, and other nuns and monks who had escaped other cloisters. Such a large building was suitable to be used as a hospital, and the sick were taken in. Sometimes there were as many as 25 people in the household. Katie, of course, could not do all the labor for such an establishment. There were manservants and maidservants, but she had to superintend everything. Furthermore, while she was engaged in both superintending and accomplishing her own physical work, her famous husband was always the center of everyone's attention. She didn't resent it. She always called him Herr Doktor and used the polite German pronoun Sie rather than the familiar Du. Student boarders regarded mealtime as an opportunity to scribble down every nugget and every clod from Luther's mouth. Katie thought he should have charged them for it. After his death, his students produced a handy volume of his comments adorned with a woodcut of Luther at the table. Luther's table talk is among the longest and best known of his works. 
although missing from this woodcut is Katie, because she was at the table too. Looking after Luther was greater than an average task because he was so often sick. He suffered from kidney stones, asthma, dizziness, alternate bouts of diarrhea and constipation, and chronic ear infections, in addition to struggling with melancholy. Like Spurgeon, he was down in the dumps, and when he went down in the dumps, he went down hard. Katie was a master of herbs, poultices, and massage. Her son Paul, who became a doctor, said his mother was half one. Not that much of what real doctors did back then was helpful to the patient, except maybe psychologically and possibly by keeping patients warm and hydrated so that the body might eventually fight off the infection itself. When the plague hit Wittenberg in 1539 and most of the residents fled, Luther and Katerina stayed and turned the whole cloister into a hospital. Money was a problem for the Luthers from the beginning, and the problem stemmed from Martin Luther alone. He was paid a respectable salary as a professor, and he frequently received gifts from the elector, the local prince, and from the town of Wittenberg, but Luther either spent the money or he gave nearly all of it away. He owed money to merchants all over town. Furthermore, he refused payments for his published writings. He wouldn't accept honoraria for his lectures, and he often tried to give back gifts he'd received, even wedding gifts. When Luther couldn't give cash to people who were in need, he often gave them silver cups and tankards right from his own cupboards. Eventually, the last silver cup was pawned, and Luther realized his spending in charity was completely out of control, and he turned the household finances over to Katie. She was a far better manager than he. Luther said, in domestic affairs, I defer to Katie. Otherwise, I'm led by the Holy Ghost. <laughs> With complete control over the finances, Katerina bought additional land in nearby Zulsdorf in order to expand her farming operations and produce more income. She also began charging room and board to visitors in the former monastery, now their home. This irritated Luther's buddies who had previously stayed there for free. More people now said more bad things about Katie. She was stingy, she was a tightwad, she was a miser. There are hints that Wittenbergers didn't especially like her. Um, I tend to think she had good business judgment and was a strong enough personality to bruise a few male egos along the way to get in control of Luther's personal affairs. Luther told his students around the table, if I were to court a girl again, I would chisel myself an obedient wife from rock. Katie clearly had the ability to stand her ground when dealing with him. He said, if I can bear the wrath of the devil of sin and of conscience, then I can also stand Kate von Bora's anger, implying that he had stood <laughs> against her anger. Katie was willing to ask him complex theological questions like why had God demanded that Abraham kill Isaac? Why had David asked to be judged according to his righteousness when he was a sinner? She participated in conversations around the table, and this irritated the other men there by expressing her opinion, especially interrupting the great man himself. If you like, you can easily find misogynist statements made by Luther. In fact, you can prove he held almost any obnoxious position you'd like, political or religious, by run, rummaging through Table Talk, which is a fun, it's a fun book. It, it's a long book, but it's fun. Luther's dinner table was a boys' club. He held the rapt attention of his fandom with exaggeration and hyperbole. Put-downs of women were all part of the game. When God installed Adam as Lord over all creatures, everything was still in good order and, pro and proper, and everything was governed in the best way. 
But when the wife came along and wanted to be clever, everything fell apart and became wildly disordered. Now, we're used to a society in which public people, like ministers and politicians, say appropriate things about mutual love and the equitable sharing of marital responsibilities in public. Meanwhile, we know that behind closed doors, these same public figures sometimes treat their wives despicably, and we realize the pleasant statements were made only for show. In some way, Luther and his society were the reverse of this modern stereotype. A lot of Luther's misogyny was just a joking dish served up to the boys' club at his table. Behind closed doors, we get a completely different picture of his relationship to Katie. Once in a moment of solemnity, he said, if one did not have this sex, womankind, housekeeping and everything that pertains to it would fall apart. And after it, all worldly governance, cities in order. In some, the world cannot dispense with women, even if men by themselves could bear children. Now that the world and its governance depended on women was certainly a rare and remarkable opinion for a man who lived in early modern Europe. Within a year after marriage, Luther's respect for Katie had become intense love. When he announced the birth of his first child to a friend, he wrote that his wife was, well, by God's grace, compliant and in every way as obedient and obliging to me, more than I had ever dared to hope, thank God, so that I would not want to exchange my poverty for the riches of Croesus. In private, he spoke to Katerina as an equal, confiding in her as he did to his closest friends about politics and theology and encouraging her to make business decisions on her own. Luther may have married Katerina out of a sense of Christian duty, but he grew to love her in the deepest sense of that word. In his letters, he wrote, to have grace and peace in marriage is a gift second only to the knowledge of the gospel. Kate, you have a God-fearing man who loves you. You are an empress. Realize it and thank God for it. If I should lose my Katie, I would not take another wife though I were offered a queen. When Katerina became gravely ill in 1540, Luther was beside himself, fretting by her bedside and pleading, Dear Kate, don't die. Don't leave me. And who might have guessed that the boisterous Luther could have signed letters like, to my dearly beloved, to my most beloved lady of the house, to my sweetheart Kate, to my dearly beloved Katie. And they could banner with one another. Luther said, you know, the time will come when a man will take more than one wife. You do, she said, and I'll go back to the convent and leave you with the kids. <laughs> Luther was not an easy man to live with. He was stubborn, opinionated, prone to melancholy, and a classic workaholic. In Katie, he had a perfect match, a woman who deeply loved and respected him, yet could also manage his volatile moods while offering him intellectual stimulation and companionship. Luther understood that he had a partner who was engaged and devoted, an active participant in the Protestant Reformation. We can just touch on their family life. When Katie was expecting their first child, the rumor-mongering rumor cranked up again. Some speculated that the child of a monk and a nun would be a monster or the Antichrist. Childbirth itself was a dangerous endeavor with perhaps 1% to 2% maternal mortality during the period. So you have like a 1 in 50 chance if you have a child in the Reformation period of dying. Tools that could turn a child in the uterus had been in use during the Roman period, but were not around during the 16th century. So any sort of complications in childbirth were often fatal to the baby, to the mother, or both. 
Luther was overjoyed and relieved that both Katie and his newborn Hans, named for his grandfather, survived childbirth. There were six children in all, three girls and three boys. Furthermore, the Luthers brought up four orphan children from among relatives in addition to their own six. One of their girls died at eight months and another at 13, but the Luthers actually beat the odds on children's survival because there was only a 50-50 chance that any child born during this period would reach the age of 10. We know for certain that Luther and Katie had fun with their kids and enjoyed spending time with them. This painting um, is, as you can see, not um, from Luther's time, 1866. Um, nevertheless, it is historically accurate. Luther really did play the lute as well as sing. He had a sweet tenor voice. Who would have guessed? If we were going to guess what kind of voice Luther had, it would be, you know, but no. Singing together as a family was a regular occurrence in their home, and Luther and two of the boys were especially musical. Every Christmas Eve, the family participated in singing From Heaven Above to Earth I Come. It's not in our hymn book, but you know that, you know that tune, especially if you know some Bachs. Da, 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 dum, 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 dum. Dum, 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 da, da, dum, 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 yeah. So he wrote that, the music, yeah. Um, because of his volatile temper, Luther was capable of harsh discipline, but he was also critical of his own parents and teachers for beating him. And so, so far as we can tell, he was reluctant to use corporal punishment on his children. Of course, being scolded by a guy like Luther might be worse than being spanked. We know he was heavily involved in the spiritual instruction of his children. When I get up in the morning, I pray with the children the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and then some psalm. He wrote a small catechism in 1529 for his children, and it's still used in Lutheran confirmation classes. There was no greater testament to the Luther's love of their children than the depth of their grief when their Magdalena died at 13. I can't do it better than simply read the description here given in one of the great biographies of Luther. Um, the author, Roland Bainton, it's called Here I Stand. The author, Roland Bainton, was not a believer, but he really understood Luther. And so I'm going to read his description of um, uh, his, his daughter Magdalena's uh, death. She lay upon her deathbed. Luther prayed, O oh God, I love her so, but thy will be done. And turning to her, Magdalenian, my little girl, you would like to stay with your father here, and you would be glad to go to your father in heaven. And she said, Yes, dear father, as God wills. And Luther reproached himself because God had blessed him as no bishop had been blessed in a thousand years, and yet he could not find it in his heart to give God thanks for the death of his daughter. Katie stood off, overcome by grief, and Luther held the child in his arms as she passed on. When she was laid away, he said, De Liebes Lenschen, you will rise and shine like the stars and the sun. How strange it is to know that she is at peace, and all is well, and yet to be so sorrowful. In the marriage ceremony, we promise to um, keep our vows until death do us part. And of course, that time did come for the Luthers four years after the death of Magdalena. 
Martin Luther died away from his home in 1546. At 62, he was an old man for the time, but youngest, youngish to us in the 21st century. Katie, who was only 47, was devastated. Worse, the law did not give Luther's estate to Katie, but to her, his children to be managed by a guardian. Luther might have conveyed some of the property to Katie for a lifetime, and he wrote a will to that effect, but unfortunately, he was too stubborn to do it the right way. He didn't follow the proper legal procedure and have the will notarized by a lawyer. And so, uh, and he also didn't appoint a guardian for his wife and children as he should have done. And so he just made problems for her after his death. Luther's enemies now took opportunity to break Katie's control of the estate and embroiled her in years of uncertainty and frustration, even desperation and despair. Just a few months after Luther died, the Schmalkaldic War broke out. Katharina had to flee Wittenberg twice. When she came back, everything that she'd built up was destroyed. The cloister lay in shambles. The livestock were stolen or slaughtered. Then in 1552, plague came again to Wittenberg, and this time she and her family fled again. En route to Torgau, the horses pulling their wagon were startled. Fearing that the wagon would tip over, she jumped out and landed hard into a ditch. The children got her to Torgau, but she never was, she was in and out of consciousness and, and died in December at the age of 53. The Reformation would have happened without Luther's marriage to um, Katrina von Bora, but their marriage served as a model of what a Protestant marriage, and especially the marriage of a Protestant pastor, would look like. For the rest of us, the marriage of these two strong-willed people under terrible circumstances demonstrates just what can be achieved in marriage if biblical principles are followed in your relationship. Finally, if there was ever a literal Proverbs 31 woman, it was Katrina von Bora. Next time you read Proverbs 31, think about her, keep her in mind. Now, about that ring. Is it possible that some American has Martin Luther's wedding ring? Not a chance! <laughs> Not a chance! <laughs> it's, it's, this is the ring in, uh, it's in uh, what's said to be Katerina's gold and ruby ring. And it's in the Staatsgesichtliches Museum, which is the state history, the city history museum in Leipzig. So that's where it is. So this is the kind of stuff that, uh, that, that archivists get to do. They go down rabbit holes. So, so I go down rabbit holes. And the wonderful thing about it is that Google has to translate. You can, you can do Google Translate so you can read what the museum has to say about the ring. It is the provenance of the ring only goes back to the mid-19th century. So suppose I was walking along in front of Mount Vernon and I just you know kicked the dirt and I and there was George Washington's wedding ring. Nobody else had seen it in all those years. You know? That's what we're talking about. This ring has no provenance before the middle of the 19th century. It just sort of boop, appears. So what they say about this ring is that it's a Danish ring and that it comes from about 1500, which is before the marriage. Um, there is a record that the Danish 
king did give Katrina a ring, but it, it's, it was before her marriage, so it wouldn't be a wedding ring. Anyway, it's a beautiful ring. It really is. It's a wonderful ring. And what it is and where it came from, you know, I have no more idea than the folks in Leipzig do. Except it'd be, it would be a wonderful thing to, a wonderful thing to have. Except I'm not quite believing that it has anything to do with Luther, even though it's inscribed on the inside with his name. I, I think that could have been added later. I just, I just don't have any idea. Um, anyway, this is the ring that they have. It's not supposed to be Luther's. It's supposed to be hers. Um, his ring was supposed to look like this. It's a gimel ring. And a gimel ring, was, it had two parts, and the two parts fit together. And so the, each of the pair would have one part of it, and they would put the rings together, and then they would, uh, it would make one ring, as you see in B here. But this design for Martin Luther's ring only comes from 1817-2, so we don't have any idea whether it has any relationship to the ring, if he actually wore a ring or whatever. So, so about rings, again, we could... Like I say, what happens to archivists is they go down rabbit holes and you never, sometimes you don't come back up. But this is, this is what I know from... So. Um, by the way, if you're interested in, um, in, in this, if you go online, you can get one for 50 euros that's you know, a copy of this. And the, people have been making them now for 100 years. So there, there are plenty of copies out there. I think we can have maybe five minutes of questions. I don't know. <laughs> no. He, he said his house in Bro well, Broke mentioned twice was because there was some thing that went out uh, used. Uh, he had the ring. Yeah. yeah. Right. Which he said he never had. It was always kept in a bank where his father, who was also a pastor in Brunswick. So, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that one looks more beat up. This is a, if you look at this picture compared with the one that you got, yeah. you'll see that this is a finer, this is a, a yeah, more it looks, when I looked at it, I said, yeah, that, you know, it really looks like a Reformation era. Mm -hmm. But one interesting thing about this, this is considered to be Katarina's ring, but it looks like a man's ring to me, you know, that it doesn't look like a, a ring a woman would wear at the time. This is the kind of stuff where, you know, if you really wanted to find out, you'd have to go to the top of the line antiques guys in major cities to ask their opinions. Have you looked at any of the pictures, any of the drawings or paintings? To see if he's wearing a ring? I've never seen I've never seen a ring. So men didn't typically wear wedding they, The wearing of wedding rings has been on and off for, you know, for centuries. Uh, in the United States, often men didn't wear rings until World War II. That was, that's when the big change came, when most people started wearing rings. So, I'm not sure, I'm not sure people did wear rings commonly in the Reformation time. Yeah, there are four, so four children survived. 
Um, yeah, I, one of the oldest boy became a, a doctor. Um, and uh, everybody, they, they all, the other four outlived him. I, I'm not sure if I can be any more specific about the ultimate. If you're thinking about descendants, you know, that's sort of the plus fact. What, what's the possibility that you could be related to Martin Luther? Well, this is something that the kids might enjoy doing. Um, so you have two parents, you have four grandparents, you have eight great-grandparents, you have 16 great-great-grandparents. It doubles every time we go, and you know how this works. So if you go back to the Reformation, which gives you 20 generations, depending on how you figure a generation, you, you're going to have someplace between 100,000 and a million ancestors. So um, what's the possibility that you will be, um, could be related to Luther? Very, very, high very high probability that somebody in this room is related to Martin Luther. Thank you, you're a great audience. <laughs>